For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone uh, this morning. In that video of Andrew and Michelle that they gave, and, and of course their wonderful daughters, the, the last uh, you know nine months or so have been uh, an incredible trial. And there's a lot they didn't say even after the fact, and uh, of obstacles that have come their way that it compounded the suffering of the initial uh, stroke. And you know I think about them, and I think about uh, so many of you. In this past uh, year, uh, the suffering that has taken place in our congregation. Uh, some of you have uh, lost loved ones, your, your father, your mother, uh, a brother or a sister. Uh, some of you have lost children, uh, either uh, after birth or while uh, carrying them in pregnancy. Uh, some of you are, are caring for family members and your parents as they have gotten older and, uh, and you see the decline and you see the end coming and it's painful to walk that journey with your, your parents. Uh, all, uh, many of us, I, I won't say all of us have had uh, times of deep suffering this year, but most of us have in one way or another been touched by it. And so uh, coming to where we are right now in Romans 8, it's timely. You know, last week, Randy finished the first of the four benefits or advantages that we receive from our faith, from being uh, now having a life that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The first 17 verses of, of Romans chapter 8, it can be labeled with that one word, that one benefit that we get, acceptance acceptance by God. Well, now we turn our attention to the second great advantage and the benefit that we have of life in the Spirit, and it's the word suffering. Suffering. And it may seem oxymoronic to say that suffering is a great benefit of having a new life in the Spirit. It's an advantage that we have by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ, but hopefully over the next two weeks, you'll see why this is absolutely the case. In this section of Romans chapter 8, there's six gospel applications that we have that God provides for us that gives us the basis for a theology of suffering. 
One of the reasons why uh, Christians today struggle with tribulations and trials and suffering is that the average Christian does not have a theology for suffering. Do not understand what the Bible teaches about suffering and what it does teach. Even if we're familiar with the principles, they haven't been appropriated and applied. But Romans chapter 8 gives us that foundation or the beginning of a great foundation with these six applications. Now, the good news is we aren't doing all six applications today. Okay, we're going to do three of them. Our focus out of this passage is going to be in verses 18 to 23. The very first application I want us to dwell on is the idea that suffering will confuse and crush us when experienced apart from the gospel. Now, you know that as a regular part of our teaching here at Covenant, we want to always put a passage of Scripture within the context in which it sits To understand what God's teaching, we have to look at what comes before and after and and even the context of the entire book. It's good for us to pause every now and then and just put a section of Scripture, and in fact, these verses this morning, into the overall context of the book of Romans. You'll remember that the book of Romans, when we started chapters 1 through uh, chapter 3, verse 25, are all about sin. And then from verses of chapter 325 to the end of chapter 5, the theme is salvation and our justification in Christ. In chapters 6 to 8, where we now find ourselves, the theme is suffering. Suffering has, and that gives us an important perspective, because suffering is placed within this body of work that deals with sanctification. In other words, in some way, suffering relates to us being sanctified by being made holy and conformed into the image of Christ. Suffering, in other words, is meant to sanctify us. There's a divine purpose behind Andrew's stroke. There's a divine purpose behind the death of our loved ones. There's a a divine purpose behind the life of uh, the loss of our jobs. There's a divine purpose behind the pain that we experience. And we're going to get more into that next week. But for right now, I just want you to understand it. If we don't believe this, suffering becomes pointless. It becomes confusing. When we separate sin or separate sanctification from its divine purpose, right? It becomes pointless and confusing to us. And the same way, if we separate uh, suffering from our acceptance by God, if we separate it from his love and his goodness, suffering ends up crushing us. These first three words in verse 18 are important. For I consider. The word for connects what is about to be said about suffering to the previous section of Scripture, verses 1 to 17, which were all about acceptance. That word consider is the Greek word logizomai. It's a word that we've already run into in chapter 6. It's that word that has to do with believing what is being said and appropriating it for yourself. It's that accounting word, and from it we get things like logistics and logic. And and so he's saying, Paul is saying, in light of what we've just talked about, an acceptance about God and how God loves us 
unconditionally in Jesus Christ, how we are his sons and his daughters. We have his smile upon us. There is no condemnation coming from him towards us, even on our very worst day. In light of that, appropriate that fact and apply it to suffering. This context of the passage has suffering right after acceptance for a reason. And the reason why I wanted to start with this application so much is because a lot of my own story, if we were to do a video of my own story, a lot of my own story has been influenced by suffering that I experienced apart from the gospel. You know, it started when, it started that very day in 1994 when we got MJ's diagnosis and I walked out of that doctor's office holding my baby and my wife, I left her in there to figure out what was going on. I couldn't handle it, the walls were closing in. And I walked out into that parking lot after hearing that diagnosis. Um, In an instant, my carefully contrived life and plans for my life And the trajectory of ministry and everything else was shattered with just a few words. And I totally separated what was happening to me from the gospel. And so I stood in that parking lot in Gulfport, Mississippi, and I got mad at God. I was furious with God. I I cursed at God. Here I am, a pastor in a church, and I... I reverted to language from earlier days, so angry at God. And you know what? I was disappointed in God. Truthfully, that's what it was. He had hurt me. How could he do this to me? I mean, wasn't I already living for God? Wasn't I already serving God? Hadn't I already given up so much, a nice career where I could have had a very prosperous, comfortable life for God? I mean, wasn't I already looking at an empty bank account for God? <laughs> wasn't I looking, was I missing out on the pleasures of life that so many of my friends had so that I could do God's work? And he turns around and he gives me a child with a disease that you have better odds of being struck by lightning than having this disease. And I could not see any good in this diagnosis. And so everything in my life got twisted up. It took me decades. (laughs) It really did take me decades um, to come to grips with the fact that um, at the root of my refusal to accept this suffering, and to see it sanctify me, at the root of that refusal was this belief that I wasn't truly accepted by God through Jesus Christ alone. I didn't know that at the time. I could have learned it a lot earlier if I had responded to my suffering differently. God is good, and He outlasted me. And, and, and that's why I fell apart this time of the year, four years ago. It just finally came to a head. And I fell apart. And that's why in the summer of 2016, I mean, I had to take that sabbatical. I had to go into deep counseling. And 
I came within a couple of weeks of turning in a resignation because it just, I was, I was a mess. And it was all because of this. This is where you, y'all remember Dr. Mike Ronson's Valley. We had him speak here. This is the blessing that Dr. Mike did with me in the counseling and discipleship was helping me to see acceptance and that my response was a rejection of what God was saying about me in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And the reason why I was so crushed was that in his diagnosis, I was seeing God's condemnation. I was seeing punishment for my failures and for my sins and for not measuring up. That I wasn't killing sin daily as we're told in Romans. The good that I wanted to do, I didn't do. And that which I didn't want to do is exactly what I did. And that conflict that we all experienced for me became the foundation for, oh, this is why I have this child. Let me tell you something. When you don't understand the acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ, when suffering comes along, and you separate that suffering from what the gospel says about you, it will absolutely crush you. And church, whenever we are crushed and confused, Satan is right at hand to step into that chaos And he will do a mind game on you and he will tempt you with all kinds of sin. And you will find yourself saying things, going down a direction in life that you could never have imagined before the suffering occurred. You know, it's part of the the work that I did with Dr. Mike and and had to just do a deep dive into my heart. Honestly, I didn't know that this was what was going on. You know, my approach to suffering was endure it. To stick your head down and bull your way through it. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible doesn't want us to endure suffering. There's an amount of endurance that has to happen, but what the gospel calls us to do is embrace suffering. And there's a big difference between the two. I thought I could endure my way through it. I could bullhead my way through it. I could stubborn my way through it. No, God won't let that happen. So here's something that I wrote in a journal, and I wanted to give it to you this morning. The anchor for our soul in the midst of suffering is our identity as loved sons and daughters, not slaves under condemnation. Church, if you don't believe and appropriate this basic aspect of the gospel that Romans 8 has already been pounding into us in the first 17 verses. If you don't appropriate that and consider that and believe it and allow it to shape who you are in your response to the gospel, suffering will wound you, it will break you, and it will crush you. Second application. All of creation, including believers, we suffer as a result of the fall. Verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This morning I clicked on a news link that talked about an event that happened last night in Tanzania, Africa. There was a, 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 basically a, an evangelistic spiritual type of crusade that was held there in a big football stadium by maybe the most popular pastor in the Tanzanian, the nation of Tanzania. Uh, it's, a, it's a prosperity type of gospel and pastor, multiple churches. Uh, when you read about Christianity taking over Africa, understand a lot of it is prosperity gospel. And in that crusade, that prosperity gospel preach charlatan, oh, I can't help but say it, pours out oil on the ground and calls it holy oil. And that if the people in the stadium would just touch the holy oil, then all of their illnesses and their deprivations and diseases and suffering would go away. And God would bless them. So 30 people were trampled to death. A dozen, couple of dozen of children entered the hospital, and the death count is expected to go higher. And then the continent of Africa and South America are being deceived by this false gospel. If the Apostle Paul was present and alive today, and he heard this message coming from our televisions and this prosperity gospel, before he would unload on them with both barrels... I have no doubt that he would treat us to the most epic eye roll ever in church history. (laughs) Listen, to say that Christians who suffer and who experience poverty and deprivation and disease and death are not living by enough faith, this is absurd and unbiblical. To say that the evidence of God's blessing on your life is that you're going to become wealthy and healthy and prosperous and all is going to go great and you're going to have the great job and the great home and the great car and the great kids and the great retirement. This is just plain, simply heretical and it's a false gospel. Suffering, church, is an inevitable aspect of life. This is true for us as individuals. This is true, as Paul says here in this passage, for all of creation. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, when Adam and Eve sin and they rebel against God and the fall occurs and God interacts with them. He curses and judges not only Adam and Eve, So that there is pain and things like labor and childbirth and the normal rhythms of life. But that creation itself would be turned upside down. And the normal purpose and harmony that would be in creation and nature would be upended. And so creation, this passage says, suffers as a result of this very fall. Suffers in three particular ways. Three words are given to us, three key words. In verse 20, it's the word futility. 
And we ought to be familiar with that word futility because about two years, two and a half years ago, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember that? And there was a common word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Does anybody remember it? What was it? Vanity. Very good. Yes. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word for vanity is that Hebrew word hevel, right? Well, what we find is that when they did a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, the, the Greek word for hevel or for vanity is the word madoetes. And that's the word that we find in verse 20 translated as futility. So it's the word for vanity in Ecclesiastes. And the definition of it is meaninglessness, purposelessness, empty, frustration, absurdness, temporary, fleeting, unpredictable, and confusing. So in other words, he's saying creation is experiencing a purposelessness that it was not designed to experience. It's experiencing an unpredictability that it was not originally designed to experience. It's it's experiencing a, a frustration and an emptiness and an absurdity that confuses us. Why? Because of the fall and sin. It wasn't designed originally for this. A second word is the word corruption in verse 21. It's something that we're all familiar with. That in life... There is this inevitable decline and decay and death that characterizes all of creation. It characterizes us as individuals. And the third word is in verse 22. It's the word groaning. Creation was designed and intended to to sing and praise to God out of joy and rejoicing. But the joy and glory of creation has been decimated by the fall, and instead, the entire creation sighs and throbs with pain. And we see this every day. Dr. Tim Keller writes that there is relentless pain that comes from first to last as things decay. As life is born, childbirth, and life is lost, death, there is pain and misery. In this creation, no experience is untainted by pain, even if it is only the pain of knowing that the experience cannot last. We've all experienced this, right? You go on vacation, and you take a seven-day vacation, and it takes you a couple of days just to decompress, And man, aren't days three, four, and five wonderful? It's like, yeah. You look at your wife and say, we need to do this more often, right? But then around day six, what happens? You start shifting back. And there's a sense of weight. It's like maybe even dread. And all you retirees are right now saying, not me anymore, bucko. Right? And you lucky dogs. But the rest of us, right? Around day six or seven, you're like, ah. And you start winding back up again. So even that experience that is so good can't last. Right? Most of us here, we have, uh, we have lived enough life to understand and relate to what Tim Keller is referring to. Suffering is an inevitable part of life. The question for all of us is this. 
How will we respond to it? And that's why verse 18 is so important. 18 is God applying the gospel in such a way that it dictates and it forms our response to suffering. In verse 18, God applies the gospel in such a way that we understand something, that our response to suffering, our application of the gospel, which informs our response, it, it, it demands that we compare our suffering to the glory that God promises to give us. It says, if you want to apply the gospel, if you don't want to separate the gospel from your suffering, then do this. Compare your suffering to the glory that God is already giving us and which he has promised in full to give us in the future. I mentioned a second ago earlier that the word for in verse 18, and, and verse 18 really kind of forms like the, the linchpin of really the second half of chapter 8. But the word for is important because it ties us back to the previous verses. You know, last week, Randy Pope spoke on verses 14 to 17. And you see this incredible narrative there. And, and we normally focus on it in this way, right? That first we have our salvation, our justification from God. We're made right with God as children of God. He adopts us as sons and daughters of God. And through that adoption, we now become heirs with Jesus Christ, an inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Glory. And, and Randy talked last week about glory. You know, and even here in life right now, we are being given more and more glory as we're conformed in the image of Jesus Christ, where we find satisfaction and peace and purpose and security in Christ alone. That glory. There's great hope in this message right here, right? And it's easy to understand why this would be our focus of these verses. But I would suggest to you, there's a problem with it. It skips an important phase. Suffering. You see, if you look at verse 17, what it says is this. If we're children, you know, we've been saved now and adopted into the family of God. So in the previous verses, he talked about being adopted as sons and daughters. Now we are heirs. We have an inheritance from God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. What is that inheritance? To be glorified with him. But there's something between the inheritance and glorification. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we're to share in Jesus' glory, then we must first share in his suffering. And this is why verse 18 says, for I consider that the suffering, remember, suffering in verse 17, you got to have it if you want the glory. And he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We suffer. We suffer because of the state of the world that we live in, the creation. We suffer because, as we've looked at already, we are waging war within ourselves against the indwelling sin nature. We are to be killing sin or it will kill us. And this tension creates pain and it creates suffering. And then, of course, we know that we will suffer simply because we follow Jesus Christ. 
Jesus himself says in John 15 and 16, he says, listen, the servant is not greater than the master. And if the world has hated me, the master, the world is going to hate you. If the world persecutes me as the master, the world is going to persecute you. I tell you, in this world, you will have tribulation. And so we suffer for these very reasons. And our response is right here. Compare the depth of your suffering to the incredible breadth and depth of the glory that God is already giving and he promises to give us in the future. This will form our response. This will influence our response. And instead of our response confusing us and being crushed by the suffering, it sanctifies us instead. You know, Paul was consistent in this matter. To the Corinthians, he writes this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I mean, think about what that means in the life of the Apostle Paul when he writes this. Here's what he calls light momentary affliction. He is shipwrecked. He is robbed numerous times on the road by bandits as he's doing God's work. He's imprisoned numerous times. He's stoned several times. In fact, one time he's stoned to death. The Bible tells us, and God brought him back to life. How about this one? He's scourged or scourged, depending if you're from the south or the north, right? Do you know what that is? That is one of the most intense forms of torture a person can ever experience. And he didn't go through that once. He went through that on five different occasions where he's beat literally half to death. Takes months to recover from a scourging. And he goes through this and he calls it light momentary affliction. How do you call that light momentary affliction? How do you call walking with your parents through dementia and Alzheimer's to the grave with them light momentary affliction? How do you call the loss of your child light momentary affliction? I mean, I was riding down Minton Road this week and past 192. I don't know what prompted it, but all of a sudden my mind was flooded with memories of my brother. And by the time I made it to Calvary Chapel, I'm weeping. A year ago, he's dying, and we bury him. How do you call this light light momentary affliction? We see what happens is when we compare our suffering to the glory of Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in our lives and in our world and what's been promised to us, something happens in our spirit and in our soul. For one thing, it draws us closer to Christ. And in being drawn closer to Christ and experiencing more of his glory, it unmasks all the things that we are relying upon instead of Christ. All the false gods and idols and functional saviors that we turn to. Some of us, we turn to recreation. Some of us, we turn to to our jobs or to our children or to food or to drug or alcohol or sex. We turn to all these things to cope with the suffering 
that we experience and the pain that we have. But when we compare our suffering to Christ, what begins to stir up in our heart is affections towards Christ and we see His suffering on our behalf and it puts it all in perspective. And over time, what happens is this indwelling Holy Spirit, He matures us. And ultimately, at full maturity, here's what you see. In a mature Christian's life, suffering becomes the catalyst for rejoicing. It's an amazing transformation. You see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. He goes through all of these afflictions, and yet in the book of Philippians, when he's talking to them, he says, rejoice always, and again, I say rejoice, and on the heels of that verse, we read this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be uh, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. With all due respect to the football players who put Philippians 4.13 underneath their eyes, Philippians 4.13 is not about throwing a football for a touchdown. And I'm glad that they, don't get me wrong, I'm glad that I, we have Christian athletes who are honoring God in this way. But the context of this verse is experiencing the highs and the lows, the joys and the sufferings of life. And how does that happen? By being drawn close to Christ and experiencing His glory. And as that glory is experienced by us, it draws us to Him. It helps us to rest in Him alone. And when you rest in the One who suffered on the cross for our sins, suffering is redeemed. And you can rejoice. I visited with one of our members about a month ago who's in hospice. And I knew as I talked to him, I'm in the presence of of a mature man of God. And he's facing death with rejoicing. What a blessing it is. What will that future glory look like to which we compare our suffering? When you look at verses 19 to 23, you see it. You know, there's bad news and good news in almost every one of these verses, right? And that's where the gospel is. So we're in these verses where there's been partial redemption. One day, we're going to receive a full inheritance. Right now, where there's frustration and futility, there will be fulfillment. In our world today, where there is corruption and death and decay, there's coming a day where there will be perfect life and full redemption. Right now, where there's moaning and groaning and pain and sorrow, there will be joy and life everlasting. That's what the future glory will be. I love the analogy that Paul gives us here. It's the analogy of childbirth. As I read that this uh, week to help us see how you can compare suffering to glory, he says, look at your childbirth and the, your children when they're born. So I did that. I thought back this week to my children. It's amazing how you never forget those days, right? So here, you know, 27 years ago, we're at a hospital in past Christian. Uh, Mississippi, or was it Ocean Springs? It was Ocean Springs, Mississippi. 
And Catherine is there at the birthing center, and I think she had like 28 hours of labor. And, uh, you know, for whatever reason, didn't want drugs. Uh, But I know why. She wanted that baby to not have milk that was diluted with drugs. That was the idea. Looking back on that, I wonder if we'd have done the drugs. But anyway, she went through a horrific labor. I mean, Jerry was backwards and upside down with a cord wrapped around his neck. And I mean, everything was just hard. You know, I'm over here going, get the salad tongs, man, and pull on that thing, get whatever. And it was just bad. But after all the agony and pain, eight hours later, she diddy bops out of the hospital into our little red Nissan Sentra that was so small, you couldn't hardly get the car seat in it. It was like, she, it was, like it was over. What, 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 what labor? You know? And then we have Jacob, and we learned our lesson. We, we stayed at home during most of the labor. We cut it a little too close, and so <laughs> we got to the birthing center, and an hour later, he's born. But I never will forget here we are, she's squatted on the ground, and, and I'm uh, squatting, holding her underneath, and she's groaning and straining, and, and Jacob is born, and she stands up, and I help her stand up, she stands up, and a nurse shows her the baby and says the, the dumbest thing that nurses ever say, isn't he beautiful? No. No. Right? Not yet. <laughs> but to mama, Right? She turns around to me and says, isn't he beautiful? Let's have another one. <laughs> and then passes, slap out, and falls to the floor with blood loss. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, how does that happen? How can you go through that agony? And then turn right around and say, let's have another one. Because the suffering is immediately outshone and minimized, not eradicated, but it takes its proper perspective and place in light of the glory of that beautiful child that God has now given you. And he says the same thing is at work in us. This Jesus who in the garden of Gethsemane as he's facing the cross, he says, Lord, give me the glory that I had with you before. And I want all of my disciples, and he prayed down through the centuries for us. He says, I want them to see and have my glory too. And why was Jesus able to go to the cross and bear the suffering and the horrors of the cross? Because in comparison to the glory, the suffering was redeemed. And it took its proper place. Let me encourage you, church. Don't separate your suffering from the gospel. It'll crush you. Instead, take the suffering that you're in, turn your eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and compare it to his glory. And watch what God will do in your life. He will redeem that suffering. And he will make it something that conforms you and grows you up and matures you. I learned that the hard way. You don't have to learn it the hard way. Lord Jesus, give us the grace that we need to to learn this the right way. Lord, I love the men and women of this church, the young people of this church, and suffering is an inevitable part of life. Give us the faith that we need to believe the truth of the gospel as it relates to our acceptance, 
Our beliefs, Lord Jesus, they define and impact our emotions. And if we don't believe this, our emotional response will be anger and betrayal and shame and all kinds of negative emotions that then drive a response and behavior that is destructive and crushes us. So give us first, Father, the faith that we need to believe that what you say about us is true. Give us the grace we need to appropriate it. And Lord, I I pray for those who are here this morning, who are at different stages of suffering for many different reasons. Lord, would you help all of us to look to you and to the glory that you have for us that this suffering that we may walk through is redeemed and used by you to sanctify us and to make us holy and at peace. In your name I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.